1: So you said that you, we were just chatting just super, super briefly before this. And you said you got a big dance tomorrow. So tell me what, what's going on tomorrow, man.
0: Yeah. So I'm doing my fifth hundred mile tomorrow. It's my sixth attempt, uh, going for number five. Uh, it's the Santa Monica Samo 100. Okay. And I'm super stoked for that one because, uh, I'm so Cal born and raised. So it's a home turf race. Um, and of course, uh, doing it for the same charity I am, which we know we can dive into. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's about 101 miles, 17,000 feet of gain and 31 hours to do it. So it's going to be a fun little dance.
1: Okay. Okay. Sounds easy on paper for an ultra runner like you and me, but, uh, as we know, things can go wrong. Uh, like everything has to go right in order for this to happen. Uh, How are you feeling about it?
0: Uh, I'm feeling pretty good. Um, Everything has to go right, but as we both know as ultra runners, things always go wrong and it's all about um, adapting and moving forward. And at the end of the day, um, I'm just excited to be able to get up and do this again and enjoy the process and just be a part of this amazing community.
1: Nice. And you've never done this race before?
0: Uh, No, this is the inaugural year that they're doing this race. So this will be uh, first for them and first for me.
1: Nice. Well, that's pretty exciting. Um, So, Okay. So one day before your 100 miler. So walk us through your day today. I'm curious, like, are you eating certain foods, drinking lots of fluids, uh, keeping keeping off your feet? Are you going to go to bed early? Like, what's it all look like?
0: Uh, So I would say the days leading up to it, just doing a lot of shakeout runs, getting on the bike, uh, definitely drinking a lot of fluids, uh, throwing some liquid IV in there and getting that extra salt and electrolytes in and letting myself put on a couple of pounds during taper because I'm going to need all of that extra storage and not being afraid to carve up and just trying to get to bed early and banking that sleep and I got a 2 a.m wake-up call tomorrow so I'm going to try to be in bed by eight o'clock today um, even if as we both know like there's a lot of tossing and turning you know just trying to get a couple hours is always good
1: yeah yeah so are you getting up at two because you have to drive to the race or what's that all about?
0: Yeah. So the race is about an hour and 15 minutes away from me. Uh, you know, I call it a local race. <laughs> sure. Um, but, um, yeah, I gotta be up at two o'clock, uh, get out of the house by 230, 30, and, um, just do my bid pickup and throw in my drop bag. And then, uh, we got a 5.00 AM start.
1: Sweet. Well, good luck, man. It sounds awesome. Uh, I'll be uh, following along. I follow you on Instagram, and I'll I'll be checking it out, man. It sounds exciting.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it.
1: Um, Tell me about the charity that you run for. It looks like uh, Richstone Family Center. How long have you been uh, trying to raise money for them? And uh, tell us how it all works.
0: Uh, so So Richstone Family is a local organization in L.A., that focuses on preventing child abuse, domestic violence and generational trauma. But what I like about them compared to a lot of other charities um, that do similar things is that they not only adopt, help the kids, they support the entire family. Uh, So their goal is to adopt the entire family. Um, And this is usually a lower income bracket, essential workers um, to help the parents break their own generational trauma. And also provide services um, to support the kids aged anywhere from like three, four, five years old to high school. Mm-hmm. And I've known Ridstone and its volunteers and its staff for five, six years. Um, I circled back to uh, raising money for them through charity about a, uh, it's been about seven, six, seven months now, and we I did a 72-hour race for them last December, and we raised $2,600 on a $2,500 goal. So nice. this year, I'm shooting for $25,000 with my scheduled races and excited to see what we can all do together.
1: Wow. Well, that's some lofty goals, but it's all for a, a good cause, it sounds like. Um, what, like. What made you pick this particular charity? Um, is this something that you have personal experience with or how did that work out
0: uh, so you know growing up me and my family uh we kind of struggle with that um kind of struggle with poverty and struggle with uh, my parents struggle with their own generational trauma and um I learned very quickly that your parents can only give you what they have and um I love my parents and um you know I These are just things that I have struggled with growing up and my parents also struggled with growing up. So I love seeing what they're doing for, um, just for the local community. And yeah, man, like it's really heavy. And it just, it's just something I really resonate with. And it gives me a why and a purpose beyond myself for something that I've been through myself and something that, me, my parents, and my family have been through together. Hmm. And I always maintain that, you know, these kids and these families don't have a choice, but running is a chosen pain that we can use to change the world and leave a positive impact.
1: Yeah, that's cool, man. Well put. Um, Have you, I guess we're just diving right into the hard questions. (laughs) Have you had personal (laughs) experience with like um, domestic violence or anything like that? I mean, it sounds like that's what this charity sort of helps with. Um, And and you mentioned like generational trauma, which I I understand what that is. And I know that's a very real thing, but um, did you have experience with domestic violence in your, your household growing up or what was that like?
0: Yeah, there was a bit of domestic violence in the household. A lot of the abuse was very verbal and a lot of manipulation, um, And there was just a lot of, a lot of me realizing that, um, like your parents want the best for you and, you know, your family wants the best for you, but they can only give you what they have. And realizing that, um, my grandparents were kind of a step above them in that trauma ladder as well. And that the buck kind of had to stop somewhere. Mm Um, so yeah, there were experiences with manipulation, like experiences with, domestic abuse, uh, just generational trauma and uh, verbal abuse, some physical abuse. Um, and these are just things that I we resonate with, um, again, because it's a lot of times it's not just a lot of times these charities don't tackle the root of the issue. And I think a lot of the times the root of the issue is the entire family unit as opposed to one piece of it.
1: Mm-hmm. and so this place um the Richstone family center you said adopts a whole family rather than just the children yeah. so that's pretty interesting so are they putting parents through certain classes or, or courses or, or giving them certain resources to break this generational trauma
0: yes absolutely they have uh services and like counseling they have services and just uh they're very intuitive in like the kind of resources that uh the people in this community need especially when we're talking about the difference between maybe somebody in the middle class or higher bracket versus Mm -hmm. essential workers like my parents you know my mom and my dad both work like steel toe jobs and they couldn't always be there for me um because they were trying to put a roof over my head which Mm -hmm. was their way of showing love um so you know like uh, they're very intuitive in helping families who are going through similar things like that and don't always have the time, but need the resources and the support, almost like an extended arm um, to help them uh, create this, to solidify the foundation of their family units.
1: Mm-hmm. Did you grow up in California?
0: I did, yeah. I grew okay. up in, uh, I lived in Los Angeles for the first uh, 13 14 years of my life and then moved to Orange County in uh, high school. So about half and half, I'm 28 now.
1: Nice. Okay. And how about your parents? Did they, were they born and raised in California or were they immigrants or what's their story?
0: My parents were immigrants. So my dad came over, my dad my grandpa came over here in the eighties and uh, eventually my mom married my dad and she came over in uh, the early nineties. So my parents are immigrants from India.
1: Okay. Okay. And I like the term steel toed job. I, I don't know if I've ever heard that, but it certainly resonates and I get it. Um, so I'm, I'm picturing that like working in factories, tra- just trying to find like the best paying manual, layer jo- ma- manual labor jobs so that they can keep a roof over their head. Is that kind of what it looked like?
0: Correct. Yeah. My dad has worked uh, multiple warehouse jobs. At one point he was uh, at one point he was doing three jobs. Like he was uh, the guy who takes jumpers down and he's working a laundromat. He was also working as a UPS driver. Mm. And then he's, he's had many hats in his life. And my mom as well was a resident nurse on a night shift for many, many years. And um, she also worked as a steel toe worker um, in the warehouse as well. Uh, So a lot of blue collar work for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Are your folks still around?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yep. Uh, My, my mom and my dad are still around. I also have a younger sister, 22.
1: Okay. Um, How's your family feel about all this crazy ultra marathon running that you're doing?
0: Oh man. (laughs) my, my dad is uh, sinking his toes into it. My mom, um, I think, I don't think she likes it in a lot of ways, but I think <laughs> she's respecting it, but it's almost kind of like a, a mom's intuition for like the pain and like caring and um, yeah, so they, um, they've come to respect it though. And they really are proud of what I'm doing. And um, there's, there's this mutual respect and love for each other now.
1: Mm, got it. Got it. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, let's begin to sort of peel the layers back. Um, tell me about how you grew up and um, and and what that looked like, and how you eventually discovered running. Um, I took a peek at your ultra sign up, and it doesn't look like you've been running for a decade or decades or anything like that. It looks like just a couple of years, maybe. So, um, yeah, how, just tell me how the story unfolded.
0: Yeah. So. Um from a physical standpoint, I'm not, I didn't come from an athletic background. Uh, I actually was, um, in remedial PE almost every year, which is like the PE that they put you in, uh, when you couldn't pass the fitness test. Um, I was the last kid on the track. Uh, I come from a family that is generationally on my dad's side, been like diabetic. Um, Mm -hmm. And after seven, eight years old, uh, I was pretty much obese up until I was 18, weighed almost 250 pounds and, um, Ooh. went through this whole journey of like kind of losing that weight. Um, oh, sorry. Are you there?
1: Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, you shoot. just cut off for a minute. there.
1: Oh, okay. Sorry about that.
0: Yeah. Um, I- But yeah, like I was there was a uh, kind of lost all that weight when I was 18, Um, had a bit of a scare. 18 was a pivotal point for me where I had kind of a scare where the doctor told me that I was pre-diabetic and I thought I was going to end up kind of next in line to just live that lifestyle. And um, that was kind of the tipping point where I started losing weight over the course of two years, but I became almost unhealthily skinny. Uh, I, I used to just exercise a lot and eat very little and, um, you know, gained all that weight back in my adult years and fell heavily again into a depression. And about four years ago, I picked up running as a means of mental health as opposed to physical health. And it started with this day that I always remember where I ran a quarter of a mile and I walked back home nauseated and just like tired and started asking myself like, man, maybe I could run five minutes straight. Maybe I could run 10 minutes straight. Maybe I could do 30. And it was just conquering one Everest after another, doing the 5k, doing the 10k half marathon. And um, eventually that during the pandemic that ended up leading to ultra marathons. And I committed to my first 100 mile when I'd only done 16 miles at once. Um, <laughs> And it's just been this thing of like seeing what's next after that and just also being propelled forward by doing it for a higher purpose.
1: Yeah, 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 that's sort of interesting. Like you decided to do it for a higher purpose rather than for yourself. Like a lot of people get into this thing as sort of a means to, I don't know, flex on Instagram or to say I was the guy who did the thing, you know, and, and that's not necessarily a a bad reason to start doing these things like that gets you into it and gets you moving forward. So I'm not necessarily against that, but it seems like you dove into the uh, um, trying to raise money for charities like almost right away.
0: Yeah. It's um, even before I reconnected with Ridstone family, um, there was every single ultra marathon. My first 100 under was for, um, a food drive in LA where we raised enough money for 1500 hot meals. Um, mm. I did a 24 hour race after that for, um, COVID, a COVID crisis in India that happened last April, um, which my grandmother was affected by, um. So there was always like a higher purpose uh, related to it. And I think a lot of that came from reading Rich Roll's book, and uh, Finding Ultra. Mm-hmm. And also reading up on Jay Shetty and um, just kind of the Dalai Lama on how altruism is the key to happiness. And mm-hmm. I've always just been doing things for charity and uh, ultras always seem like a powerful tool for me to have a bigger impact. Um, That being said, though, there is a, there's, I think there's different levels to it. There's the higher purpose aspect. And there's also like the personal aspect of like, how much more can I do? Like how, how much farther can I push my physical limits? And also just on an interpersonal level, just showing other people that like, hey, like I wasn't the most athletic guy in the room, but if you show up every day, then you can also do these amazing things and conquer your Everest.
1: Yeah. A hundred percent, man. I've said on this podcast a million times that after I finished my first hundred miler, I didn't feel like I'm awesome. And I did this awesome thing. I thought we as human beings are amazing and we can do whatever it is we want to do. Like I finally made the connection that you can do whatever you put your mind to. Like I'd heard that a million times, but I finally made that connection. So, um, yeah, anybody can do this stuff. Um, you know, it might be harder for some folks to, to get the ball rolling if they're overweight or have other handicaps or disabilities, but we can do whatever we want. It's, it's hundred percent true. Um, so let's go back. Um, so you said you were 250 pounds until you were 18 years old. So, I mean, um, how did you get that big? (laughs) Like, I mean, obviously you weren't eating properly and you weren't exercising, but I mean, would you put some of the blame on, on family lifestyle or was it just, yeah. What did that look like?
0: Um, I think a lot of it does come from several factors such as like, um, I'd say the biggest factor was finding out what depression was at a very early age. Um, I was nine years old and I started to, kind of feel those ebb and flows and I didn't know how to describe it I didn't be asked like why are you unhappy and I'd say I don't know you know um and a common problem in American culture um, is that fast food is very cheap Mm -hmm. um and it's very accessible and easy so um I definitely fell into the addiction of like having fast food like burritos and just like uh, my favorite was like Del Taco and just like In and Out, um, and I just kind of fell down that rabbit hole. And over time, uh, as things got tougher, you know, I was uh, I was bullied a lot in high school for and middle school for various region, reasons like my obesity, for speech therapy, for uh, my ethnicity. Um, And as those things got to me and I became more outcasted, I started turning to food for comfort. Mm -hmm. And my weight just sort of skyrocketed as a result of that until I got to that 250 weight when I was 18. Um, And that's sort of how it got to that.
1: Mm -hmm. So um, I'm just trying to picture like... (sighs) And I don't mean to be coarse by asking these questions, but like, was your family also into the fast food culture or were you eating fast food on the side of your family? Like when you, as a kid were out or, um, like I understand the, um, eating food as a, as a means of comfort and that sort of being your drug, um, what exa- like, were you hiding and eating or was this, was it just like a slow accumulation and all of a sudden you stepped on a scale and like, holy crap, like I'm a big guy.
0: No, no, I definitely knew I was big and I was definitely insecure about it. Um, okay. It definitely ballooned when I was like 16 to 18, but mm. it was definitely, definitely uh, kind of the habits that were built up over time. Um, so background with my dad's family um, and my mom's families, they both had their own ways of showing love with food. My mom grew up very poor. Um, Our family wasn't very well off uh, up until I was about eight, nine, maybe 10 years old. And so in that culture, kind of like food is a way of like um, showing that prosperity, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And on my dad's side, it was a lot of like, you know, live life and just eat food and enjoy everything, um, enjoy all the comforts. And, um, that was sort of those mentalities that sort of combined to kind of help me get into that food addiction. But I would say that a lot of it was just, um, my own depression and finding some means for comfort because there was no other way for me to express myself. Um, I didn't know how to express myself and I didn't know where to turn to because there was just uh Boeing on one side and just um, kind of that Asian culture of like be a man on the other side. And uh, food just kind of became the means of um, just like coping.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Um, And depression is um, also a fickle subject and I understand it, and I've had my experiences with it. Um, did, did, have you ever gotten to the root of where that depression came from, or was that from um, body images and uh, being bullied in school, or um, have you ever sought therapy out to sort of dig into that, or what does that look like now?
0: Um, I definitely I know that's
1: a lot of questions there. <laughs>
0: Well, to start off, I've definitely sought, sought therapy out and I know that it's something that definitely doesn't work for me as well as like the self-reflection of running does. Um, but of course, everyone is different and I recommend that everybody at least give therapy a shot mm-hmm. and see if it works for you. Um, I think the root of that depression probably came from, if I had to picture if i had to think of one place where it probably came from it was kind of like neither belonging here nor there which is a common problem that immigrant kids have where it's like i go to india and i'm too american to fit in with them i i'm here in the states and i'm too indian to fit in with um everyone here and that's also minorities too i think um one subject that is also very fickle and underlooked by the media is minority on minority racism. Um, mm. My parents were guilty of it, too. Like, look at those blacks, look at those a- Asians. Um, they were also doing the same thing to us. But it's kind of like a fear of that unknown. Um, but I think it was per- I think uh, that would probably be the place where it started. It was just like mm. not fitting in and not understanding why it didn't fit in. And also, just, um, living in this nice community when, and going to this good school when we weren't good off when we weren't well off. So not fitting in with the kids who lived a different, a better lifestyle growing up. So there was a lot of that for sure. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a tough place to start from, you know, to start your young adult years from, uh, at it, it's almost a disadvantage. You know, you're starting with depression and trying to work your way up and, uh, yeah, that's, that's tough,
0: man. And then, um, and, then um, and then to add to that, being ostracized early for um, being in that remedial, because, you know, kids are kids, you know, so they don't quite know how to, they don't quite know how to understand or cope with like um, a kid who's different. So there's also like being in remedial PE, being in speech therapy early. Um, those things didn't quite help me get closer to kids, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, 100%. You know, like, I I think back to my childhood, and I was bullied a little bit. And I struggled with trying to fit in a little bit. But I was also just kind of a knuckleheaded kid who also bullied other kids, who also didn't let other kids fit in for whatever reason, you know, and it's like, I don't know if I was just a kid being a kid, like I almost hate to admit that. And some of the things that I did and said to people, when I think back, I just shudder thinking about them. Like uh, I feel really bad about it, but I've also had those things done to me. So like, I understand both ends of it. I just wasn't smart enough to, to think it through, to think ahead, to think how this person's going to feel and how I'm going to feel about myself a week later after saying this and watching the repercussions of hurting someone's feelings. And um, yeah, yeah, I mean, kids are just kids. It it sucks being a kid. It's growing up is tough.
0: And I mean, for sure, like I can't rid myself of a lot of the guilt as well, of like saying things to other kids when like, I just thought like, Hey, this is my chance to fit in, you know, let me uh, say this thing to another kid. You know, Um, I did have a few instances like that. I had a few instances like that, that were created by, um, my image that was put in my head of like what other minorities were like before I actually learned my lesson. So yeah, kids will be kids. You know, we do those things to each other and, um, all we can do is learn from it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's the important part. Okay. So you're 18 years old, um, you step on the scale and it's two fifties and you decide you want to start losing weight. So what did that look
0: like? um it honestly just started with me it was a lot of trial and error um it started with me just getting outside and just biking and walking and doing whatever I could um and it was definitely not a linear process the first 10 12 pounds took longer than I would have expected it to Mm -hmm. and then there was a phase where I quit fast food pretty much cold turkey and I started just having like I mean, like, just like whole foods and like, um, there was this place where I went to like a major extreme where like I was having nothing but like raw food and whole food and, um, and like no sodium at all to the point where I remember going to a doctor and she's like, you need more salts. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but there was just a lot of experimenting in that phase and also just going to college. Um, becoming more active, you know, I didn't have my own car until I was uh, maybe like 20. So there's a lot of like, walking to the bus stop, um, walking around campus playing basketball for four or five hours, um, mm-hmm. that which was just running back and forth. And then also getting, I think, developing this unhealthy mindset of like, um, I need to be in a deficit all the time, uh, this unhealthy mindset of like, Um, I ate this food or um, I hate these, I ate this snack and I need to go out and play basketball or like go do some exercise for two, three hours or vice versa. Like I didn't exercise that much. All I did was my normal walk today and I'm just going to have like some nuts and like some coconut water or something.
1: Mm. And this was all at the age of like 18, 19, something like that.
0: Yeah, it was a process that took place um, over about a year and a half, and I ended up going from about 250 pounds to uh, about 165, and that was like pure, like, that was like pure, like no muscle, that was just like losing all this like weight, having like all this loose fat, um, which I still do, you know, like stretch marks, um, and still kind of looking into my, still kind of looking into the mirror and still only seeing the fat, which is another thing that I've started to become more vocal about recently, which is body dysmorphia.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. Um, I've been doing this podcast for, gosh, almost a few years, two and a half years or so. And so I've had a lot of cool conversations with folks. And I think this is starting to come up more and more with men um just having um you know body image um issues and food issues and um you know this used to be primarily like something that was big with the women you know but i'm hearing more and more guys talk about this and it's funny just was it yesterday or two days ago i went for a bike ride with a buddy of mine and and uh we had a great conversation and he started telling me about how when he was in college um he ended up in a, a, psychotic episode where when, once he was out on his own and he was a young man at college and could kind of do what he wanted, he found himself just going to the cafeteria and eating just tons and tons of food. And then just wandering around in the days and going to a restaurant and just eating tons and tons of food and just completely spun out and ended up in, uh, in, um, uh, psychiatric hospital, you know, and, um, yeah, it just is kind of mind blowing to me that more and more people, especially men are coming out and in and talking about this. And I mean, there is a fair amount of pressure put on us as men to look a certain way. Um, whether it's through TV, movies, advertisements. Um, so when you were initially trying to lose this weight, what was your motivation behind it? Uh, And I'm guessing that at that age, it was like kind of a selfish motivation, like to get girls or to look like so and so or whatever. And in no judgment there, because like I said, that that gets the ball rolling and that's kind of how things start. Yeah,
0: Yeah, definitely. That was part of the motivators for sure. Um, And even in my previous throughout my childhood and my teenage years, even throughout other failed attempts to lose weight, it was always as a part as a result of reasons like that because as a kid as a teenager what do you want more than to like just fit in you know Mm -hmm. um when I was 18 I think the thing that was different and that helped me actually lose that weight was that it was more because of shell shock it was like a the shocking look in the mirror when the doctor told me that like you know, you're pre-diabetic, you're going to become a diabetic if you don't stop. Mm -hmm. And just realizing that I need to take my foot off the gas and really just like pivot around here and start losing weight or I'm going to be living this kind of life that, you know, my dad has, my grandpa has, like my great grandpa has and I kind of just break this chain.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that takes a certain amount of guts, too, to sort of just step in and say, I'm going to be the end to this generational trauma. You know, Um, like you said, our parents just kind of have what they have, and they give us what they have to offer, and that's it. And the same thing with their parents and their parents. And then whether that's unhealthy food decisions or alcoholism or domestic violence and abuse, Um, sometimes that just carries down generation after generation. As much as we said, I'm not going to be like my dad or my grandpa or whatever the case is, um, you find yourself falling into that trap quite often. And, uh, it it takes, it takes guts to say that the buck stops here. This is it. We're going to, we're going to change things from here on out. And, uh, you know, whether I have kids or not, like I'm not going to suffer from this anymore. I am going to do something about this. And, and, uh, that takes a certain amount of guts, man. I commend you.
0: I appreciate it
1: for sure. Um, so you lost the weight and then, but it sounds like it wasn't done in the healthiest way. Um, how did things sort of shake out after that?
0: Um, so the weight started slowly kind of piling back on after it hit 165 to the point where I was back to 185 when I was um just about graduating college. Then I started going into um I was civil engineer, so I was going into um private sector work where I was working long hours and mm-hmm. overtime and um wasn't doing as active as I was in college and um Started falling into the rut of depression again due to a variety of things that were going on in my life Um, and just things just kind of like ballooned again uh, including my weight my weight went back up to 220 in 2019 Um, and that was the point um, in 2018 actually was when I picked up running again so it was four years ago where I picked up running again And that was for, like I said earlier, for mental health reasons, as opposed to physical reasons, even though you might expect that it was something I'd pick up again because I gained weight. It was actually for a mental health reason.
1: Mm. How did you have that, um, that notion that running was going to help you with your mental health? Um, For me personally, I started running for physical health and realized that running was helping me with my mental health. It was kind of like, and I feel like that's probably the way that most people experience it, but it sounds like you in the beginning were like, I need to do something to be happy. I need to boost my endorphins. And so I'm going to go out and exercise. Um, How did you have that sort of foresight?
0: You know, the truth is that I actually didn't know. I didn't know if running was going to help me, but I also didn't know where else to turn um, Mm. because I was working those long hours. And a lot of the exercise I had to do was um, could not be co-ed with other people because it was later at night and it had to be something simple. So it was either going to be walking or it was going to be running. And my friend had recently signed up for the NYC Marathon and was... Uh, My coworker at the time signed up for the NYC Marathon and had started running towards that. And I started thinking about this half marathon, but I wasn't totally sure at that moment. So I started looking at a 5K and that's when um, a lot of issues were starting to culminate as well, such as the depression was at an all time high again. I just had a panic attack at work um, over basically losing hundreds of thousands of dollars on a million dollar, like, I was a civil engineer, so it was a transportation project. Um, so I'd had a panic attack at work. Um, I, my dad was out of a job, so there was also the financial side. Um, and just a bunch of things were kind of culminating at that moment, and I just needed to find an outlet, because I It it seems to be, it's kind of a recurring theme now that I think about it. We're like, I don't know for men and for my life in general, we're like, I didn't know where to turn. So I had to find this other outlet Mm -hmm. and running ended up being that outlet. Mm -hmm.
1: And why running? Why not go to therapy or start taking antidepressants or Take up volleyball or water polo? Like, why did you hone in on running? Were you, uh, was it, was that the time you read Rich Roll's book, or were you inspired by something else? I'm always just curious, like why people zero in on running.
0: I think just the simplicity of it. Um, just realizing mm-hmm. that you don't need anything but a pair of shoes to go out and yeah. run. Yeah. Well, to with water polo, you need the gear, and with volleyball, yeah. you need the gear, and. Um, you know, therapy costs money. Um, but running is something you can just like, you can just put your shoes on and just get out the door, no matter what time it is. Um, and I did watch a documentary at the time, which started, which implanted the seed of ultras in me way earlier than I actually started running ultras called REI, how to run a 100. Um, I watched that documentary and at the time I didn't even consider the fact. I didn't even look in that direction and think I'm ever going to do this. (laughs) But I thought to myself, but I think i more thought to myself of like, I resonated with the souls in that movie of how happy they were with this achievement, how happy they were during the process. And maybe I didn't realize that at the time, but Mm. um, I watched that documentary. And first thing I thought was, man, this is for superhumans and demigods. I'm never going to do this. (laughs) But they seem to be having a lot of fun running. So maybe I'll give my own little thing a shot, you know, like just go out and see what I can do.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's cool, man. And honestly, when I ask that question to people, so many people say just for the simplicity of it, like, you know, everybody's got a junky pair of target running shoes that they can put on and they can go out the door or whatever, you know? And so it's just easy. You don't have to buy a $4,000 mountain bike to go out and try this new sport. It's, it's the easiest, most simple, um, thing you can do is just, yeah, head out the door and, and go for it. So, um, it's
0: it's, um, it's simple. It's for everybody and it doesn't matter who you are and where you come from.
1: Mhm. Mm-hmm. And if you can't run, if you're too big to run, get out and walk. You know, walk yeah. around the block. Walk a mile. Walk a half mile. Walk a mile, and then eventually throw in just you know jog from one block to the next, and then walk the rest of that mile. You don't have to run oh, the whole thing.
0: It. That's how I got from a quarter mile to where I am now. It's just run, walk, run, walk.
1: Totally. So here's how I'm picturing you. Tell me if I'm wrong at this point in your life. You're working a, a full-time job as a civ- civil engineer. And then at nighttime, you're going out and doing this training sort of on your own. Um, like I'm just picturing the romanticism of, of a man like tired from a long day at work and going out when it's dark out and sort of hammering out these miles. And uh, another thing is when, when people are sort of overweight, they don't like to go out and run in public or in the daytime because of, you know, body shame issues, or they're worried about how they look. And so a lot of people start either on a treadmill or doing it at night. Um, again, I'm just pick, I'm, that's how I'm picturing this. I could be completely no, off, was, but
0: how- that was, you're right. No, that was definitely one of the factors for sure. Like I was, I would always do my runs, not only out of necessity early in the morning or at night, but because of that insecurity of the way I looked when I was doing it. And that insecurity kind of went away over time. Mm
1: -hmm. Good. And it should, man, because I'm not necessarily a a big overweight guy, but if I were to see someone that's overweight out on the trails or running, I'm always like, dude, I'll cross the street to fist bump this person because it's twice as hard for them to get out the door and do it as it is for me, you know? Like, I just understand and have a certain level of empathy where I can say, all right, nice work, dude. Like you, you're doing it. Like, don't, don't feel bad about yourself. Don't overthink this. Um, you might be on the beginning of this journey, or you might be on the roller coaster version of this journey, but just keep at it. Like I'm, when I see those people, I'm just like more, more proud almost, <laughs>
0: And I appreciate that you do that because I try to just give a nod and a thumbs up and everything because we all started from someplace and Mm -hmm. we all have our own journeys and we have nothing to gain by putting other people down in our own lives. So better to just encourage each other and lift each other up. And um, yeah, when I see something like that, I just, especially on the trails um, I just love to show love to it and just support and just smiles and um happiness.
1: Yeah, 100%. Um so was your first race back in those days a 5K? Uh
0: yeah, so my first official race was a 5K um with maybe like 10 participants uh in <laughs> August of 2018. Okay. Um, not much fanfare, you know, I just drove there, did the thing and I drove home. <laughs> um and then there was around the time I finished that 5k, this is kind of a recurring theme in my life. Um, When I started my running journey is just picking these colossal Everest like goals and figuring out the rest on the way. So at the time when I finished my 5k, my chosen colossal goal was doing the Joshua tree half marathon,
1: Mm.
0: um, which was going to be in November. And I remember just like sweating bullets over it. I'm like, dude, you just did a three miles. Like, how are you going to go out and do 13? Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh, you're going to have to figure this out, man. <laughs> yes.
1: Know? Yeah. I love it, man. I mean, yeah, I was the same way. Like I said again on this podcast that when I trained for my first half marathon, it was like I was training for war or something. You know, I was training to go into a serious battle and I just remember going out and doing my first 10 mile run at night. And I was just like, no matter what, if I die, I'm going to finish 10 miles tonight. You know, <laughs> and yeah. that's how it all starts. yeah Yeah. okay so um 5k you skipped the 10k went to half marathon
0: um i did end up doing a 10k in between but i committed to the half marathon before i kind of did the in-between stuff which is a total recurring theme with like how i set up my big goals
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean again that's how we get it done right like hit the button on the computer that says enter and i'm signed up for this race that i'm super scared of and here we go now i have to sign up for a shorter race a couple months before that as training you know i've been there exactly
0: exactly <laughs>
1: <laughs> for those first few races were you still trying to lose weight or had the weight come off at that point
0: um the weight didn't really start coming off until maybe like 2020 actually i didn't oh. think too much about it Um, I got to the weight slowly came off over time, so I was 220 at the time, and about early 2020, right as the lockdown hit, I was probably close to like 195. And then, when I started getting into more miles and more um trails and just like increasing the workload, my weight started chipping off to the point where I got closer to. Uh, where I am right now, which is about one sixty six one sixty
1: five nice do you feel like you're in a healthy place now? I mean do you feel uh do you feel like you're putting healthy food in your body you aren't just all skin and bones, you have a little bit of muscle too or like how do you feel on a day to day basis now
0: I feel really good like I feel like i'm uh, mentally physically in the best shape of my life um, i there's a lot of strength training that goes in with my running. Uh,
1: That's what I was wondering.
0: There's a good balance of eating the foods that I want, but also eating the right foods with Mm -hmm. uh, density and nutritional value. And I feel like my decisions are not dictated by what's on the scale anymore, as opposed to what my body actually needs Mm -hmm. Um, for peak performance and for mental health and um, yeah, man, best shape of my life.
1: Nice. Good. When people open up on the podcast and tell me about their past experiences and especially about their struggles, I always feel like I have to throw a caveat in there and like sort of explain, or at least, um, give a nod to my struggles as well. So, um, I never struggled so much with food, but I struggled with alcohol. I struggled with substances and, and that was sort of my big demons that I had to wrestle with to, to get to where I am today. Um, now where the hell was I going with that? I don't remember, (laughs) but, um, um, yeah, man. So, all right. I completely lost my train of thought there. Um, so, Okay what was your first ultra marathon? Was that during the COVID lockdown um, or when was that?
0: It was kind of the in between, um, after the first lockdown and it was the end of 2020. Uh, okay. so most of the ultra races on the West coast or closer to the West coast were happening in Utah in the fall of 2020. Um, so the first ultra marathon I signed up for was a Zion 50 K. I committed to my first 100-miler, which was the Zion 100 for April of 2021. I signed up for that in July, and then I signed up for the Zion 50K. So again, it's that recurring theme of like, I'm going to set this big goal that's going to make me sweat bullets. Um, like, what did I just do? And then have to figure out the rest from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so My first ultra marathon was the Zion 50K, and that was definitely um, an ordeal that I'll never forget as well. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Tell me about that. Like, um, I want to hear about like the highs and the lows and what was that like?
0: Um, I think the highs, the high first off for me was definitely like that 15 to 20 mile where I just realized like, I'm doing this thing, you know, like I'm out here doing this ultra marathon. Um, and I just PR'd like, um, at, after the 23 miles going into 24 and realizing that like my longest long run up to that point was like 23 miles, three weeks before. And realizing that I just PR'd that and now I'm going into like this uncharted territory and that I was yeah. a winner for it.
1: And then yeah. the
0: low sort of were like self-created. Like there's a lot of like, it was very hard to like meet other ultra runners in the pandemic. And I also didn't know where to begin with my research. Cause it's like, how do you, how does a total rookie at like ultras realize like what do you look up when you want to uh, real when you need to figure out that you need electrolytes like how do you know to look up salt tabs how do you know to look up like pickles or how do you know to look up certain things like that so I didn't have any electrolytes whatsoever during that race I was wearing the total wrongest socks and I had blister issues all over my feet um, I fell at mile 26 and I ended up just laying on the ground for about five minutes because I erupted into like Charlie horses to the point where like 10, 15 runners were stopping to check on me. <laughs> One of them actually gave me like their energy chews. And that was also my first run in with how amazing the community is. Yeah. Um, but that mile 26 at mile 31 took at least two and a half hours. I was just death marching to the finish line. Mm. Um, and, but it, <laughs> But it got done. It was a
1: memorable experience. My 50 K wasn't too far off from that either, man. I mean, (laughs) like I I wasn't quite ready for it, but I was as ready as I was going to get, you know, and I just went out there and suffered through it and loved every minute of it and started thinking about my first 50 miler. So, all right. So you made it through 50 K was the next step a 50 miler. Oh no. You signed up for a hundred miler.
0: Yeah, so I never actually ended up doing a fifty mile or a one hundred k. I just did several other fifty ks leading up okay. to my hundred Mauer. Nice. So I ended okay. up doing um, February February twenty twenty one was when I did my second fifty k because there was a kind of that stoppage of like races um, in between when they had like that massive surge in like twenty twenty races started opening up in California on technicalities like it's on Indian reservations and they were like smaller more simple events that were treated as like group runs and I did my second 50k and that was where I met my coach Heather Catchpole Um, Mm. and we ended up running the entire thing together and about halfway through it I ended up asking her to be my coach because I had no idea what I was doing like I had (laughs) Like I'd Googled certain things and I cranked out multiple 20 mile long runs um, and long back to back long runs. But as far as like speed workouts and hill repeats and nutrition, I had no clue. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd already committed to doing after that second ultra, I'd committed to doing three more 50 K's in my last two months of my training block. And so she sort of wrapped everything nicely around those races and got me prepared for the, uh, April Zion 100.
1: Okay. Okay. And was that a suffer fest or were you feeling more prepared for that? Or what did that one look like?
0: that one was also a supper fest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> again, my path is like anything but unconventional. Like, uh, I would definitely be the last person to say, like, um, do a 50 k and go straight to a 100. I would say, go do a 50 mile or go do a hundred K. Um, but everyone's story is different. Um, I ended up finishing that race, uh, DFL dead fucking last <laughs> with, uh, two minutes left. Um, I had all kinds of issues during that race that I had GI issues with, um, dairy, which ended up making me turn to fully plant-based from vegetarian a few months later, which is a whole nother thing. Um, I ended up hurting my ankle to the point where I couldn't put weight on it in the last 20 miles. And I was suffering on it for the last, for the second half of the race. Um, I, Ended up getting horrific blisters on my feet. My feet were like raw sausages. Um, I had blood blisters on my pinky, uh, like on my pinky toe that had to be, the medic basically gave me a syringe and he told me to, it's going to fill up again. You need to drain it again. Um, And he ended, I was, I remember sitting there and he was like, man, that's a lot of blood, bro. You're a rock star." Um, But I think more than anything during that race that, the finish was probably the best finish I've ever had in all the races I've done up to this point, which is like, um, four 100 mile finishes out of all of them. This is still my favorite one.
1: Even though you were DFL your last place and it was your favorite one, just was it the feeling of accomplishment or why would you say that was your favorite
0: one? It was the feeling of being at mile 96 and the map was telling me that, or it was the feeling of being at mile 98 and the map telling me that you still have four miles to go and you only have 40 minutes to do it. And and for the first time thinking, oh my God, I'm not gonna make it. Mm. And walking around, stumbling on one of the last loops out in the heat, out of water, just thinking, thinking of like, man, like mixed feelings, like I'm still gonna finish this thing even if I don't make it, even if it's past 36, because a hundred miles is a hundred miles but also like coming up with excuses for all the time. I just committed and couldn't get it done. And that was when um, my friend, Rob Rich, who was the aid station captain of the last aid station was kind of getting ready to sweep that area of the course. And a runner ahead had said that I was coming, um, amazing trail community again. Um, And he and his daughter uh, told me that I was actually only two miles away from the finish. Um, and the map was wrong. And so they they came behind me and they started pacing me. And they were just wrapping up the aid station. And they said, do you want us to stay here? Or do you want us to come with you? And I said, I would rather you guys run to the finish with me because you helped me get to this point. And so uh, Rob, his daughter, um, and one of his other friends, they all ran me into the finish line. And I remember them saying like you got to give it everything you got um because i only had a few minutes to spare and up until that point the last 30 miles i was doing like 20 25 minute miles i mean the first 50 miles of that race took me 14 hours the last 50 took me 22 hours so yep. um i just remember sprinting sprinting at what was like a 10 minute pace mm-hmm. and just like running like just giving it everything I got at that point I said like forget like forget my legs like if this is the last thing I have to do I'm just gonna do it yeah and I just remember crossing that finish line and when I was behind that finish line I thought it was this is like my swan song like this is my big thing in life and then when I crossed that finish line I immediately knew it was only the beginning Mm. damn dude I got goosebumps I got goosebumps.
1: Just listening to that.
0: Well, if you think that's wild, it's the text that Rob sent me after the race that gave me chills. Um, He said like, you changed my life. You changed my daughter's life. And he said, thanks for showing my daughter and my family that you always fight till the end, no matter what the result is to just be a, just be a fighter it doesn't matter what the result is. It's about the process. Thank you for, thank you for showing us how to be a fighter Mm. and I'll never forget that text. Um, and I've kind of held that mentality with me the whole way. It's just, it's not about where I end up as long as I give it everything I got and I fight till the final bell.
1: Mm. That's beautiful. Um, and, you probably learned so much about yourself that day and your own personal strength and resolve. And you couldn't have learned that from a thousand books, every book in the library, you know, you couldn't have learned that from the greatest teachers at Harvard and Yale. You, you, you might've been able to hear that, but you wouldn't have really known it or understood it. And, and, you're never going to forget that day. You will be on your deathbed thinking back to the greatest times in your life, and that
0: day will be one of them. That will be one of them. Absolutely.
1: That's awesome, man. That is so cool. It's hard to top that, you know, and you've done three more hundreds since then. Um, and that might be the one for a long, long time. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. Um, and just looking at your Instagram, um, and again you are running for this foundation this charity which is uh honorable and it's it's really cool and it looks like later this year you're doing uh ultra in Peru one in Iceland and the Moab 240 is that right
0: Correct yeah so i'm uh in 3 weeks i'm going to Peru for a 5 day stage race um uh yeah uh, that'll be about 140 miles through the rainforest kind of like nice. self-supported like the Marathon de sablas okay um and then the Iceland thing is just me living another sending it on another dream uh, which is I've always wanted to through hike countries from border to border and Iceland was the one that kind of popped up for the time of the year and decided that I want to hike the 300 miles from of the Icelandic traverse from south to north um And just, uh, have that little adventure and see how that goes and use it as part of my MOAB training. And then, um, October is my big dance for the year, which is the MOAB 240, which I'm also doing for all of these for Redstone. Um, and one other thing that I found out for the MOAB 240 is that if I finish the race, I'll be the first runner representing India to finish that race. Wow. That's pretty big.
1: Well, that's really cool, man. I mean, God, what a slacker you are. I mean, throw some bigger races in there. Why don't you? (laughs) That's really cool, man. So you've got your whole year mapped out. Um, I'm just curious, like, where do you see this going in five or 10 years? Do you think that far ahead? Um, Do you still want to be running? or are you just putting everything into this year and then we'll see what happens next year
0: Well so this is all um this is all preparation for next year. Uh 2023 I am doing the Cocodona 250 and I'm also mm-hmm. doing the Triple Crown of 200s. Um I guess oh. the informal name that they call that is the Grand Slam of 200s. So I'm going for okay. four 200s in the calendar year and um I guess technically five, um, in a full year, if you count that I'm doing Moab twice. <laughs> um, what do you mean?
1: Wait, you're doing Moab no, twice.
0: I'm doing, Mo- I'm doing the Moab 240 in 2022, but I also have to do the Moab. Oh, 20-
1: gotcha. Gotcha. 23. So, yep. uh,
0: four, two hundreds in 23. And then I have these sort of these plans that I'm trying to work around of like eventually uh live in my forrest gump moment and running across the u.s and Ooh. um kind of also running across india to raise awareness of the sport as well that'll be 24 25 we'll see how that goes
1: okay this is probably a stupid question that i should know but geographically what's larger the u.s or india
0: uh, the U S for sure. US, um, okay. D- depending on which of the ways you do it. If you do India from North to South, it's about 2,500 miles. There's some okay. directions you could do the U S which is about the same as well. So yeah, but um, yeah, as far as like which route I'm going to take uh, in the U S traverse uh, not sure yet. No idea. Okay. Um, India, it'll be from the north point uh, where Kashmir is to the south point, uh, the south tip of India near Kanyakumari. Mm-hmm. They call it the K2K. So yeah, we'll just, um, that's pretty much the, again, it's the whole like, let's have this idea and then we'll figure out the rest later.
1: <laughs> yeah, man. That's the best way to do it, in my opinion. Just sign up for it and then just figure it out along the way.
0: Yeah, and to me, it's not about, you know, how it ends up. It's not about the achievement. Um, I have this thing that um, I'd rather fail big than win small. Mm. Um, and I just know that me just going out there doing my thing and the and people knowing my story and seeing me go out and do those things is going to at least change one life. Like to me, it's not about being that person who changes the world. It's about being that person who becomes a catalyst for that person who might end up changing the world. It could be one of those kids. It could be somebody who's watching this podcast. It could be somebody who has just seen one of my posts. Um, Just uh, having that sort of impact.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You never know who you're going to impact, man. Um, It's that ripple effect. You know, I'm going to post this online and it's going to be there until, there's no more internet, you know, so 50 <laughs> years from now, someone might listen to this and be super inspired by it. And it might be a, a game changer for them. Um, another, we're going, we're going for another story that I've said on the podcast before, but one of my biggest inspirations was this guy I'd never met in my life. When I was a kid, we used to see this guy running all over the place and, and he'd be running through town with his shirt off and he was always really tan and skinny and, and we always just kind of thought, man, this guy must be crazy. Like what's he doing out doing all this running? But I always saw him and I always thought it always just stayed in my mind, I guess. And then we'd be driving out in the country and I would see that we'd see the same guy. He's just like 20 miles out from town out there running all by himself. And, um, it wasn't necessarily inspirational to me at the time, but when I started running, my mind went back to that guy and I'm like, man, I wonder who that dude was. I bet you he was some badass marathon guy and don't, yeah. I, I don't even know who he was. And, uh, it was a huge inspiration for me,
0: you know? Yeah.
1: Definitely. You just never know who's watching.
0: Yeah. You just never, and you never know going back to how you're just like providing encouragement to, you know, that guy who just gets out the door who might be overweight doing that thing. Like you never know, what one simple action might do for somebody, like even if mm-hmm. it's a thumbs up, that person might five years from now be like this badass and be like, "I'll never forget um, that guy who I later found out was Adam who gave me that thumbs up on the road." Mm-hmm. You know, and that changed my mm-hmm.
1: life. You know. Yep. Yep. I love all that stuff, man. I love it. Um, okay, so you're doing a hundred miler tomorrow. The same old one hundred. Is that what you said it's called?
0: Yep. Uh, okay. It's short for Santa Monica. Uh, okay. 100.
1: Okay. Um, and are you, you just kind of using this as a tra- training run or do you have more hundred milers peppered throughout the year?
0: Um, so I had kind of done, um, I'd done the antelope 100 in March, which is a DNF. Um, I did the Zion 100 in April, four weeks ago, which was, a. Uh, I finished that one. um, and then I'm just doing the same. Old. So it's kind of just like training runs, but also just kind of viewing my body out and just seeing what I can do and how much, how like just step-by-step step kind of seeing like, hey, my body recovered pretty good from this. I uh, wonder what would happen if I do a couple of these. Um, but right now I would say if there's any one main focus, it's on building volume and time on feet, which is going to be important for the MOAB 240 and for the grand slam of 200s is time on feet
1: totally totally um what does your training normally look like what did your training look like leading up to this 100
0: um so leading up to this one because i've had multiple because i've had basically three 100 mile attempts in three months um there was a lot of um it was very intuitive of like that first week after you finished the 100, just feeling your body out and see how it goes and just right. eating like it's your job and doing recovery. And after that, it was sort of just doing the miles that feel comfortable kind of having to range between 40 to 60. And, um, and then just kind of like going at that for a couple of weeks and going into kind of like a mini taper of like two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, Last year, when I had less races, it was definitely more of like larger training blocks where I peak my mileage at 85 to 90. And now it's more about just like feeling my body out in between these races because there's such a huge volume of races. And not being afraid of not comparing myself to others in terms of mileage, because that's a trap that other people fall into. You'll see guys going out and doing 100 mile weeks. You'll see some guys doing like 50, 40 doing just as good. And it's just all about figuring out your own body and, um, not being afraid to step on the bike when I need to not being afraid to like focus on strength work and mobility and yoga when I need to, and just doing the miles that feel good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's smart, man. You got to find that balance. And it's easy when you're a newer ultra runner to fall in love with the sport and just start falling really hard in love with it and going out and running way too many miles. Like I've fallen into that trap. You get injured, then you're down for a few months and then you got to figure out where that balance is going to be.
0: Yeah. And uh, so it sounds to, like I have to emphasize again, how important strength training and mobility have been for me, hmm. especially single-legged strength work, even just like 10, 15 minutes a day of doing like body weight stuff or like resistance band kettlebell stuff. And just hip openers, like just five, 10 minutes a day. That stuff has made a huge difference compared to like not doing it at all.
1: A hundred percent. Well, anybody who's listening to this, take that advice because I have been seeing PTs lately for an injury and I, they're, they're just giving me the exercises that I should have been doing all along. So <laughs> listen, listen to the man right here. Um, well, cool, man. Um, and if, if someone's listening to this and they want to donate to the foundation that you're running for, how, how would we do that?
0: Um, there's two ways to donate. Um, you can find it on Instagram at Gandhi, um, And there's also a QR code on that Instagram that can be scanned um, to go to the GoFundMe page. We have a GoFundMe page that's very easy to google it's called for the kids 2022 Ritstone fundraiser
1: okay okay and um and you said you're trying to raise a big amount of money and is that through the end of this year or when when are you is there like a date that you're trying to raise that money by
0: um the goal is by the end of this calendar year is calendar when i'm trying year. to raise the money by the 25000
1: okay sweet and so you got some big stuff between now and then man i mean talk about do big things right <laughs> just, yeah I, I love it i love it um cool man well this is a fun conversation like i sense um a certain amount of determination with you and um though you're a somewhat new ultra runner only within the past few years like i just sense that um you're really determined you have this resolve and um It is what it is. You're just going to go out and you're going to do this. And that's just, it's as simple as that. And I respect that. And I admire that. And, um, you know, some people come on the show and it, it it feels like they're doing this for a show or to impress somebody or, and then you also get the feeling like, oh, I don't know if they're going to do it because it seems like they're doing it for the wrong reasons. And it doesn't feel like that with you. So, um, good luck, dude. Hang in there. I think you're going to have, this is going to be the best year of your life, you know, and next year might be better than that, but just enjoy it. Because like we said earlier, you know, you, you may be on your deathbed and you'll be thinking back. And these are, these are the times you're going to be thinking of.
0: Yeah, you're definitely right about that. I appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. Anything else we missed, anything else we can cover or point people in a certain direction or anything like that before we close this out?
0: Uh, No, I think we hit, uh, I think we hit all the nails, so I appreciate it.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Well, come back anytime, dude. We'll be keeping an eye on you. And after you destroy some of these big races, I'm going to want to hear about them. So we'll have to have you back on.
0: Yeah, man, that sounds so good. This is a fun conversation and thanks for having me on.
1: Anytime. um, I appreciate it, man. Have a great day and good luck tomorrow. And uh, yeah, go get after it, dude.
0: Yeah. Same to you. Have a great day, Adam.
1: Thanks, man. Take care. You too. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you like what we are doing at Big Things Crewing, or you enjoy the podcast, please consider donating to us on Patreon. Patreon.com/slash/do-big-things is where you can drop a dollar in the hat, so to speak. I'd like to thank our loyal Patreon subscribers. Without you guys, this isn't possible. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'd like to thank our sponsors. First of all, Exoskin. Their running apparel keeps you comfortable in absolutely any condition. Say goodbye to chafing and blisters. Check them out. Exoskin.us. Use our discount code, capital BTC for 15% off. I also want to tell you guys real quick about Bigger Than The Trail. Bigger Than The Trail is a 501c3 tax-exempt organization that is using trail running as a platform to advocate for mental health. If you've ever thought about getting therapy but aren't in the position where you can afford it or you don't have insurance, Bigger Than The Trail offers you free therapy for three months. Yes, you got it. I said it. You heard it right. I couldn't love what these guys are doing more. I signed up for it. It was quick, it was easy. Within 48 hours, I had a, a therapist that met all my pre-requirements. It was all matched up with me and met my personal criteria, and I met with her every week for, I don't know, a couple months. And uh, you know, I, I, I met with her until I felt a little bit better. And uh, you know, I'm trying this thing. You guys should try this thing, and you know, we can all do it together. Look up bigger than the trail. Sign up for the services, and let's do the small things in life that eventually lead us to doing the big things. Let them know we sent you. Also, we want to thank Alter Ego Running. They make premium performance hats. Everyone needs a good lid or two when you're out running on an epic adventure. Uh, These hats should be your go-to on everyday runs, epic adventures, and just cruising around town. Check out Alter Ego Running. Use our promo code, capital D. All caps, do big things, and that's for 20% off. Last but not least, this podcast is brought to you by Athletic Brewing, the finest non-alcoholic craft beer in the market. Check out athleticbrewing.com and use my discount code. McRobertsA20, all caps, for 20% off, the finest non-alcoholic beer around. Enjoy the taste without the hangover. Remember, guys, life is short. Do big things, baby. Pedro, take us for a run.